0: Hello and welcome to the Business Line podcast. I'm Nivedita Varadarajan. The G20 summit, which was held in New Delhi recently, was a big event for India. There were major announcements that were made during the summit. The African Union was admitted into the grouping, making it the G21 and no more G20. Several infrastructure projects were also announced, and India clinched a joint statement on the very first day of the summit itself. G20 leaders and media organisations around the world praised India's efforts in making this event a big success. With this, India is positioning itself to be a leader, a voice, if you will, of the Global South. What does this mean as India as an emerging superpower? It is my great pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Swaran Singh, who is a Professor of International Relations at JNU in New Delhi. Professor, thank you so much for joining us today. India has been pushing to make multilateral forums more inclusive. How important is the inclusion of the African Union in G20? Is it fair to say this is an effort by India to increase its engagement with uh, Africa?
1: First of all, multilateralism in general has come under certain skepticism for its failure to deliver in addressing multiple challenges that the world is facing today. So there has also been a strong Indian voice seeking reforms in international organizations, including in United Nations. And the fundamental effort that is being made is to make these multilateral organizations or groupings more representative and therefore inclusive. And that is what, when India got the opportunity to have the presidency of G20, the entire focus was to make it as diverse, as democratic, as inclusive as possible. Mm-hmm. And uh, with a successful inclusion of African Union now, which includes 55 nations, G21 now includes countries uh, roughly around 90 or even more than 90, which makes it perhaps uh, the largest organization like United Nations. Of course, United Nations is even more larger but perhaps more effective in the sense and more representative and more inclusive compared to the systems that are evolved after the Second World War in the United Nations. So India has been fairly successful in initiating that effort in making it democratic, representative and inclusive.
0: So this is something that India has been batting for for a long time. And now we are doing it. So can we also see it as a way for India to reach out to African countries? We've had good relations with African countries all this time. But is this taking it to the next
1: level? Something that is significant to understand is that Africa has usually stayed on the margins of Mm -hmm. international decision making. Whenever colonial powers in 19th century or even early 20th century engaged Africa, the motive and the method was largely extracting the resources that Africa has, including slave trade, if you remember. And compared to that, India's engagement with Africa is very distinct. Uh, Mm. The most strongest link that India has is Gandhiji's experiments with his non-violence in South Africa. And of course, since then, uh, a large number of Indian diaspora in uh, African countries, uh, in some of the countries, they are very, very successful businessmen, even influential in politics. Across African universities, you can see teachers and professors of ethnic Indian origin or Indian citizens. It's a very different relationship. So when the government of India in 1950s devised a program called ITEC, International Technical and Economic Cooperation, which is today called Developmental Partnership, the focus from the very beginning was to enable those countries to seek their own development and growth the way they would like to do it. Something that we call today skill building and capacity building. So in that sense, India's engagement is very different. And therefore, the fact that India was able to include African Union into G20 will provide an enormous boost to India's engagement with Africa, which I call is a continent of future.
0: Moving on, let's talk about the Delhi Declaration. Before the start of the G20 summit, people were very skeptical, saying that India might not be able to have a declaration in place. The last time around, It took them a lot of time to reach a declaration. How big of a diplomatic coup is this uh, Delhi declaration? Because there is no attachments, there's no notes, there's no any of them. Every member is in agreement.
1: One quick way to understand the success of New Delhi leaders' declaration of the G20 is to know that in most multilateral forums, Mm-hmm. The last sessions are usually extended because the consensus has not become possible as of now, as you mentioned the last Bali summit as well. And here, despite the fact that there were open and well-known differences on several issues, uh, not just Ukraine crisis, on issues of deferment or waiving of uh, debt, on reducing of uh, or eliminating of fossil fuels, on climate finance, And of course, the most visible one was the differences on Ukraine crisis. But apparently, the work behind closed doors of India team, I call it India team because a very large number of people were involved in that exercise, right from the top, from Indian Prime Minister's level. And in India case, very unusual thing happened. At the end of the very first session, they were able to declare that uh, they are adopting the final New Delhi leaders declaration. And uh, not just that, it was extremely detailed and uh, estimates are it is more than twice the size than any declaration of 17 uh, submit meetings of G20 so far. And fairly actionable focus targets like reducing uh, gender digital divide to half by 2030. So very specific focus in that sense. So in that sense, yes, it's a kind of a benchmark uh, India has set by creating a final declaration of this kind and uh, this will take G20 a long way, particularly because G20 in coming times is going to be continuously chaired by countries of global south, which India has brought to the center stage in entire discussions. Uh, for example, last year, Indonesia, this year, India, next year, Brazil, and then 2025, South Africa. Uh, in that sense, there is a certain possibility of uh, India's uh, efforts being reinforced in coming years as well.
0: So well, that brings me to my next question. In the Delhi Declaration, like you rightly said, there was a lot of mention about actionable mentions about uh, funding climate change, about taxation, about digital public uh, infrastructure and all of that. So can we see more action from the G20? So one of the biggest criticisms, like you said in the previous question, is that multilateral forums were not effective enough in bringing change. It was a nice place to come and talk, uh, have some diplomatic relationship, and there are not many outcomes. Can we see those outcomes from now on? Even Prime Minister Narendra Modi was talking about having a session later on in the year to see how many of these commitments we can actually fulfill.
1: I think to understand whether the final New Delhi leaders declaration adopted is actionable or not or how much actionable it can be is also to understand that G21 is not an international organization. It is not passing a resolution which is mandatory on members. It is a grouping and it's a final declaration where leaders will have to go back home and at the national level implement some of the things on which they have agreed to to work together. And that is why you have to judge the actionable part of the Delhi declaration from that perspective. Mm -hmm. Now, there are very clearly efforts made in the declaration to create innovative methodologies of how things would be finally achieved for example in case of uh, multilateral development banks reforms there is an effort to go beyond g7 in terms of raising of the capital which is required for any action they want to take include even the private sources to raise capital for the world bank and then world bank should go beyond the traditional sectors where it has been engaging itself. So likewise, uh, the focus on not just women development, but women-led development, focus on digital public infrastructure, which India is now a leading uh, innovator in that, and uh, creating a new kind of a model where India is saying we are willing to share this advanced platforms that India has successfully not just created, but applied in, it's on uh, country in in India itself, and uh, share that just for free. Imagine technology transfers traditionally were very very difficult. Advanced nations would not share technology, or they were often very costly to get them. India is setting a new model again that you know India is willing to whatever it is, COVID or it is uh, uh, digital uh, payment platforms, UPI and so on. India is willing to share that with other countries and transfer of technology has a very different imagination in that sense. Likewise, I could give you several examples where language has been created such and methodology so applied Mm. that it should perhaps become actionable. And of course, as you just mentioned, Prime Minister has also proposed a virtual summit before India's presidency comes to an end in November, which again gives a certain time frame where we can assess as to What needs to change, what needs to evolve differently so that this declaration becomes far more easier to implement? Indeed, the fact that this declaration was adopted at the end of the first session itself meant that India had the first afternoon, evening and next whole day to still continue to make that kind of understanding with these national leaders as to how now once this declaration is adopted, how will it be implemented? And some of the initiatives that you saw happening here, for example, global biofuel coalition of 19 countries, which is not limited, again, innovative method is not limited to nation states, but would have international organizations joining it, would have agencies and companies within states joining it. Uh, Initiative that again wants to take that whole green economy uh, ideas of of the uh, final declaration. Forward. Mm-hmm. Or this whole global partnership for in- infrastructure investment of Europe, United States, India and West Asia together, uh, again, is an initiative where you want to make it possible that the transition to the uh, sort of green economy becomes easier because Middle East countries will have to now evolve exiting over dependence on fossil fuels or using fossil fuels in a much more sort of advanced fashion of creating hydrogen and creating liquefied coal and so on. So how that connectivity that India always has had it can also, again, contribute Europe to Middle East, to India, and potentially to ASEAN all the way. Mm-hmm. All of these initiatives are actually taking forward the final declaration of G21 from New Delhi. And therefore, I think the focus completely now is to how to achieve what has been agreed upon in the final declaration.
0: So, my next question to you was something you mentioned in your current answer about the India-Middle East-Europe Economic Corridor. I think that is the biggest takeaway from this summit, even more than the Delhi summit, which is a big feat in itself. Do you think that this corridor can take on the Belt and Road Initiative? For one, it's not as big as Belt and Road so far, but do you think it can take on China?
1: I think, first of all, there is often tendency to look at this initiative in comparison to China's Belt and Road Initiative. That's not how one needs to look at it. For example, Saudi Arabia is in Belt and Road Initiative, but also part of Mm -hmm. this GPII initiative. So India has always sought to increase engagement with Middle East. In fact, India is friendly to all Middle East countries today, countries like Saudi Arabia, Iran, UAE, Israel. Countries that sometimes have difficulties among themselves are all great partners of India. Mm -hmm. We have about 57 or 58 billion dollars of trade with Saudi Arabia, which we are trying to double in coming years. We have UAE as the third largest trading partner of India, second largest destination for India's exports and enormous dependence on energy, oil and gas that India has on the region. But remember, India was never able to develop a continental route to Middle East because Pakistan and Afghanistan come in the way and understanding India-Pakistan relations that has not been possible. So for India it is definitely a very ambitious project. I hope it will be coming to fruition as soon as possible uh, to use uh, shipping and rail lines uh, to, to connect to Middle East which is a very integral part of India's economic engagement around the world now and from there engage with Europe and sort of Europe, which is also economies are largely saturating over a period of time, these are advanced economies particularly can continue to grow very rapidly, they're growing sometime 1%, sometimes 2%. They also need to find areas where their economic engagement can be far more fruitful in that sense. So, therefore, Europe is showing enormous interest. Middle East is interested. India has always been interested. Is now perhaps looking that it it is a possibility. We were trying to Iran, for example, for a long time, but Iran has become target of uh, Western nations over a period of time. So, India using Iran as a hub to connect to Eurasia through Chabahar has not been very, very effective again. So, Given the geopolitical difficulties, as Indian leadership has underlined repeatedly, though G20 is not focused on geopolitics, but geopolitics influences, impacts on how mm-hmm. even the macroeconomic relationships and decisions can be made. So yes, in that sense, for India particularly, it's a very ambitious project. Even a breakthrough, it uh, if it uh, is implemented, uh, it will have its own uh, sort of traction and time. Uh, let's see, but it was, yes, uh, a, an important decision during the G20 summit meeting.
0: Let's just briefly talk about the two big missing figureheads. One is Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, and the other one is Xi Jinping, the president of China. Was there, the absence, a big black mark in this G20 summit?
1: Uh, first of all, as far as G20 you know, summit meetings are concerned, let me say, other than the first two meetings in in 2008 and nine, uh, never all twenty leaders have been present. So it's not the first time that this happened in India. Of course, uh, one can understand that uh, never before both China and uh, Russia were absent. Indeed, uh, President Xi Jinping, since he took over uh, leadership in 2013, has always been. In G20 summit meetings, uh, so yes, in some sense, it uh, it is uh, noticeable in that sense mm. also because China is second largest economy. But you know, officially, as far as G20 is concerned, national delegations take positions on several issues that are on discussion, and China was represented at the level of Prime Minister leading the delegation. So what I think could have been possible if uh, both President Putin and President Xi Jinping were in New Delhi is things that could have happened on the bilaterals, on the Mm. sidelines of multilateral meetings. Often on sidelines of multilateral meetings, so much more is achieved. Mm. For example, President uh, Joe Biden actually said it on record uh, that he was looking forward to meet President Xi Jinping in New Delhi and will miss that opportunity now. And uh, one can understand President Putin because there is an international criminal court uh, warrant issued against him and he may be occupied with the Ukraine crisis. But President Xi Jinping's absence did raise several speculations. And if these leaders were in the summit meeting, maybe it would have also uh, allowed India to play a certain role in mitigating the crisis. And let me quickly say that could have been one of the reasons why the Indian Prime Minister has proposed to have a virtual summit before the Indian presidency comes to an end in November. Definitely all these leaders uh, will be in the virtual summit present and uh, discussing with each other. I don't think that uh, in virtual summit we expect any leader to be missing. So hopefully that will also be you know, sort of uh, taken care of and this will become a very interesting presidency of India where we will have both in-person submit followed by a virtual submit as well. So hopefully India has been able to make uh, a major dent and uh, put an India imprint on G21 uh, deliberations, uh, even structure has changed from 20 to 21 now. With uh, 55 countries of uh, or Afri- of Africa now being represented here, talking to G7 directly one to one, having as much of a veto power because it works on consensus. Uh, so it's an interesting uh, experience, and I think what I usually say is that has this has uh, been a major milestone in India's journey as it. Evolves as a major player in international relations where India has used this last uh, 10 months of India's presidency in making India ready for the world and making world ready for India.
0: It's interesting that you talk about bilateral talks in a big setting like this because during the BRICS summit which happened recently, Prime Minister Modi and President Xi Jinping didn't talk to each other.
1: But nevertheless, you see in the meeting, there was an interaction, there was at least a minimum curtsies. And more important, in BRICS, India-China tensions on the border did not make any difference in building consensus in taking six new members. Mm. So in the multilateral level, you would have issues of bilateral, which could be uh, discussed or resolved or moved forward. But at the multilateral level, discussions bilaterals don't matter. So when Indian Prime Minister and uh, President Xi Jinping were together there in BRICS summit meeting, their bilateral issues did not impact the fact that they were not able to build consensus in taking six new members. So if President Xi Jinping was in New Delhi, I don't think that would matter for the multilateral part of it. But definitely, we would have had an ad- added advantage at the level of bilaterals between whether President Xi and Joe Biden or. President Putin and President Joe Biden, or between Prime Minister Modi and President Xi Jinping, or uh, several other bilateral because several European countries also have concerns uh, about China. The whole discussion about redesigning supply chains, Frenchshoring, shoring, onshoring, etc., semiconductors being now produced increasingly. In United States, so that kind of rattling effect that we are noticing post-pandemic in international production and supply chains would have been smoother, I, I suppose, slightly because if big leaders meet uh, directly face to face. They can perhaps um, uh, at least assuage each uh, each other's concerns, if not resolve issues. But hopefully there will be a virtual summit and hopefully all of them will be there in the virtual summit.
0: Uh, So finally, sir, before I let you go, is India emerging as a legitimate voice for the global south? We addressed this in the beginning of the conversation. Let's address it in the end. Is India becoming a legitimate voice of the global south? And is that a good thing?
1: This is a good thing. There is no doubt about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, India's uh, civilizational ethos are such that, if you remember, Prime Minister opened his uh, speech in the very first session by quoting uh, from a Prakrit writing in the neighborhood of New Delhi, as he was saying, which alludes to India's uh, civilizational vision always being global, talking about human race, Manav Jati. Mm. Same is India's Constitution, Article Fifty One, that talks about successive generations of India as the leadership working for not international peace but peace for human race. Mm-hmm. So that vision has been very central, and it was reflected in Afro-Asian movement during Nehru's times, Non-Alignment during Nehru's times, yeah. India's engagement with the Group of Seventy Seven at United Nations. India has always spoken of world as one family. Yeah. That was the central theme of G Twenty One in New Delhi. And therefore, India has been able to bring to the table the vision that India has always believed in, that decision-making at global level must be inclusive, otherwise they will never be effective. And that is how we are in crisis. Mm-hmm. And the fact that India, in the very first 10 minutes of the first session of G20 summit in New Delhi, was able to bring in Africa as a permanent member and make them actually sit there, of course, the efforts had started from June this year to build that consensus in communication with all the leaders. That will give a big boost to India's engagement with the Africa. That will give a big boost to India's stature as a spokesperson uh, or even you know, some people would describe it leader of the Global South in that sense. Uh, of course, India is not the only country that claims to be the voice of uh, Global South. But mm. this opportunity to make a big dent in making the most powerful grouping of the world, top 20 economies and bring Africa into it. You know, Africa, as I was saying, is usually on the margins of global forums for decision making. Mm-hmm. Here, Africa sits as an equal member. That would definitely provide a big boost to both India's engagement and also India's credentials as a voice for Global South, if not leader of Global South.
0: Thank you so much, Sal, for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much, and it's a pleasure to talk to you.